Hello again. Welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, and today for lucky episode number 17, my guest is Peter Kessler. My one claim to fame in mass media was a spot on Peter Kessler's show on Sirius XM's PGA Tour channel. I was brought on prior to the 2011 Open Championship, about to be held at Royal St. George's, a course I'd never played, for a discussion during which I stunningly predicted Darren Clark would win. Okay, that's not true, but I was dealing gold nuggets on sandwich and leaks golf in general, and then, when the topic turned to Tiger Woods and whatever on- and off-course issues he was going through at the moment, I offered this jewel. I think he's changing his swing too much. Yeah, that's right. Still, I feel like I basically carried Peter through that eight-minute segment, though, interestingly, I was never asked to return. What I remember most about the show, however, is that Peter treated me with genuine respect, like a media peer, and how he had some nice, if inflated, things to say about me in his intro. At that moment, he became one of my favorite people, because, you know, that's how it works in this business. In all seriousness, Kessler was the face and voice of the Golf Channel when it came on the air in 1995, hosting programs like Golf Talk Live and Golf Academy Live, and basically everything else the channel aired in those early days. Or rather, back when the channel was more substantive and enjoyable to watch. Between the Golf Channel, the PGA Tour radio program, magazine articles, and live events, he's interviewed upwards of 3,000 different people, including virtually every major golf figure of the last 100 years. He's a man of unlimited knowledge and even more stories, and I thought, leading into Masters Week, it would be a great time to have him on the podcast. We got into golf course and architecture talk, but primarily we chatted about the Masters in Augusta National, golf history, and we delved into the equipment debate. But with Peter, the conversation is really about his relationships, experience, and his unique connection to the game. We went very long, so I'm splitting this up into two episodes, but I don't believe you'll mind. Kessler is one of the game's great storytellers, so get ready to sit back and relax or run, or cycle, or drive, or do laundry, and listen to the rich, unctuous tones of Peter Kessler. Loves Friars Head out on Long Island, which is a great Crenshaw core course. So it's, it's he's been out there? there. That's my. That's probably. I would say that's in my top three of of any golf course that I'd like to see. Me too. No question. I I, I could not believe anything about the whole place, including the showers. And and I'm friendly with the owner Ken Basque, and uh, he won the '97 Mid Am, and I hosted the '98 Mid Am dinner so i became friendly with ken and then i saw him a few years ago where i hosted something else where they had all the mid-am champs and and then i and i heard about friar's head so i called uh ben crenshaw's guy and he said well it's your friend owns it just call him so we went out and we've played two or two or three times last year and one of the notes i wrote to ken was you know a day at friar's head dash sheer bliss and he wrote back and said i copyrighted that phrase <laughs> and uh i just i just just where you can just put your tee in the ground anywhere you want depending on how long you want the hole to play and the whole place is just incredible so every time kevin writes to me my son he just every once in a while he'll just send a fh and that's it yeah and uh yeah so that, yeah that's one for, of the code word for bliss 
Yeah, what a what a crazy so so good everything about it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, well you've you've got to keep yourself in shape if you've got the connection now. Yeah, well we play we play Maidstone every year and we played Friars Head a couple of times last year and once the year before I think and and I used to live right around the corner from Wingfoot, so I probably paid there like a hundred times and back in the eighties the caddy master Pat Collins it was not very much of a secret that if you just took a group and you drove over to Wingfoot, you could pay Pat a hundred dollars a man plus a hundred dollars a bag for the caddies, and you could play all thirty-six for two hundred bucks. <laughs> and you know he didn't. You know he, there was no guest thing. I mean it was totally you know illegit. But I spent a lot of days playing thirty-six holes there because of Pat Collins, and uh, they just redid that. They flattened the greens. It's kind of weird. I, I mean. Those greens, I mean, Crenshaw was called in a few years ago, and they said, what do you think? And he said, I wouldn't touch one blade here. And they called Gil Hansen, and he said, I got a lot of ideas, and he created a lot of false fronts. And, I mean, the 11th green on the big course used to tilt very severely from back to front. And if you were past the pin, you just had to breathe on it, or you were it was just like the first hole, go right off the green. And they flattened them, and I, it took me a while to understand that what, the, the philosophy was was that if they were flatter, they could be faster. And I said, I don't think the pros mind speed. I think they mind speed with undulations. So if you take the undulations out, I think they're going to score lower. Even though they moved the tees back, they even bought a house um, behind the 16th tee and put the tee there. And, uh, yeah, they, they flattened the greens and they put some awkward kind of bunker stuff they they took away the flash bunkers and they did something else I, I wasn't as happy with it as i thought i might be but hans has done everything up there brayburn and wingfoot and quaker ridge i mean he's all over the sleep sleepy hollow i'm surprised that they even they touched anything around the greens at wingfoot every that's, one of them that's would every. be one of the few places that i would say that's not your problem you know you don't need to touch it don't leave it alone it's fine yeah, yeah, I mean, Crenshaw literally said, I wouldn't change anything. He said, maybe I'd move a couple of tees back. He said, but that's it. Well, we do have the Masters coming up, Peter, and you had a, a short-lived podcast called uh, Reading the Break. Uh, I was So I went back and listened to these. Uh, they're, they're short, kind of like the Paul Harvey, uh, real quick hitters based on history and your interactions with so many of the people that you've interviewed. But one thing that caught my attention was it was the Monday last year before the Masters, and you were look, you looking at the weather forecast, and you kind of did your own f- prediction of what might happen. And you said the, the weather and the tournament conditions and the, the softening of the greens would bring in players who were not noted as the best putters. And you mentioned, I think you mentioned Rory, and then I, I think you mentioned, if I'm remembering right, maybe Justin Rose. And then I was waiting for it. I was like, is he going to get there? Is he going to get there? And of course you did. You said Sergio. Um, and said you kind of predicted that those guys, because the course conditions, would have a good week. Do you have a, a thought or a prevailing uh, kind of idea of what might happen going into this week's? Well, it's so hard. You know, it's funny that you said that because normally the 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 thing I like to least do is try to figure out who's going to win a golf tournament under the philosophy that, you know, if it's the Super Bowl, it's two teams and, you know, and you can look at the stats and did they play each other this year and where are they weak and where are they strong and it's two teams. So, you know, you've got in theory a 50-50 
shot. But, you know, at the Masters Tournament, there's going to be 86 players. Well, going to actually be 87, including the winner of Houston. And so you're going to have 87 players. But, you know, then the Players' Championship is going to say we've got the deepest field. But that's not true, really, because nobody cares if you're a top 10 player what the 100th player is doing or what he might be up to. They only care about the top 10, the top 20, maybe. So I feel like any everybody that could win the Masters will be at the Masters. I don't think anybody who could win is being left off. And there were some guys who were trying to get in by virtue of the match play, and a few of them did get in, but I didn't see a winner there or a guy who can compete. But, you know, the, the, the golf course is different if it's slowed down a little bit, and the weather forecast is absolutely atrocious. I mean, the early part of the week is supposed to be nice, and, you know, if you go on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and then you show up on Thursday, it's a completely different golf course. It's much, much faster on Thursday than it is on Wednesday or Tuesday. And now if they get some sprinkles, then nothing will change because they're able to suck the moisture out of those greens with the sub-air systems they have on all 18 holes. But those greens are the hardest 18 set of platforms that I've ever played, um, literally. I, when I played there, I, I could not believe when I got to the first green. I mean, you could five-putt every one of those greens if you're 30 feet away from the hole on, on the wrong line, and they're just absolutely impossible. And I always find it fascinating that the guy who wins usually has between zero and two three-putts for 72 holes, which is absolutely astonishing and what that means is is that whoever wins that golf tournament from four to eight feet has to make those putts those are the key putts at augusta national they're key everywhere but they're tougher at augusta national and and the greens play tricks with your mind and you you need to be hitting the shortest clubs you can hit in there i was talking to freddie couples about it he said it's so different. He said, if I'm feeling good and my back is okay, he said, there's a lot of holes I can hit nine iron to. And he said, then I can get it around the hole, which you have to do to be the winner or to be competitive. And he said, but if I've got to hit a seven iron, he said, frequently I'm going to be 35 feet from the hole and two putting is going to be really tough. So the things that you really look for this week are driving distance as opposed to driving accuracy because the course plays fairly wide and the rough isn't really very rough and you can still spin the golf ball if you're one of the best players in the world. It's not going to release like crazy. And so it's it's iron play and it's how good did you putt inside of 10 feet and it's how good were your nerves during the week when you realized how important this event was when it creeped into your head. So Given the the magnitude of the tournament, the difficulty of the golf course, the difficulty of the walk, I mean, it is a really tough walk. I remember the first time I went in 95, I went up with Arnold and Winnie Palmer, and it was Arnold's sort of last official, you know, 36 holes at the Masters, and so I walked both days with Winnie, who I became very, very close with, and even up until she passed away, in late 90, no, yes, in late 99, around Thanksgiving, we used to exchange murder mystery books all the time. And just before she passed away, she sent me a box of books that I had given to her. And I was very, very upset when I got them because we did used to return them to each other for some reason. But 
when I got so many from her near the time that she passed, I knew that she was obviously not doing well. And I probably spoke to her the last time, maybe 60 days before she passed away. So she and I are walking the golf course and I was exhausted and I was actually in pretty good shape then because the golf channel just started and I was watching my weight and I was in good shape and I wanted to look good on camera. And we started walking up the 18th hole the first day and I said to Winnie, something's wrong. I said, I cannot catch my breath. And she started to laugh at me and she said, Peter, we're walking straight up a mountain. And uh, and that's essentially what you have on so many of the holes there. Number one and number nine is straight up the hill and 18 is straight up the hill. And there's a lot of holes that traverse the hill so that the holes are fairly flat. But it's, it's a serious walk. So so being in shape is important. You know, I think back to Casey Martin uh, trying to get a golf cart, which he successfully did, but then didn't play well enough to keep his card. But I had a discussion with Tim Fincham when I was at the Golf Channel, and, and I handled it badly. It was only one of two interviews that I regretted something that I had done, another one being with Arnold Palmer and the illegal golf club he endorsed. I could have handled that better. And normally, I never took sides on an issue. If somebody had an opinion, I might say, well, some people would say, as opposed to, well, wait a minute, let me tell you what I think. And with Fincham, I took Casey Martin's side, and I took the position that Casey was as exhausted on the first tee the first day as everybody was on the 72nd green the last day, and therefore he should get the cart. And I later came to agree with Tim, whose main point was that walking is part of the examination. It's part of what you have to do to be successful. And he said to me before the show, he said, do you ever walk a course six days in a row in a medal tournament? And he got me thinking, but it was later that I came to my senses. So there's, there's, so, much, there's so much that comes together for a competitor, which is why usually one of the really terrific players wins. Unless it's cold or unless it rained a lot, you know, there, there's five to 12 guys that you're going to look for, the best players in the world, to pick up a Masters. And so, you know, when I look at the list of guys who are playing well, it's pretty much everybody. And anybody who had an issue going into next week is working on it this week. You know, Jordan Spieth hadn't putted as well as he's putted historically. So what do you think he's working on? He's working on his putting. Tiger hasn't driven it as accurately as he, as he would like. What's he working on? He's got to be working on his driving. If I know what they need to work on, they know 10 times more what they need to work on, and they're obviously doing it. So I look for guys to have figured out any issues by the time the bell rings next Thursday morning. And therefore, I look for this, you know, this gaggle of guys, five to 12 guys who can win the golf tournament. And I'm feeling like unless it rains hard, that you will get one of those guys as your winner, that the course will, the course will, you know, will have some run to it, that the edges will kick the ball towards the trees. I would like to see them lose the semi-rough because the semi-rough actually holds balls up from going towards the trees and has actually provided a sort of a cushion for these guys on the edges of the fairways. And it used to be the case the ball would just go right to the trees, but the trees were so brilliantly organized when the course was designed because Bobby Jones's philosophy was that if you have trees, which he didn't like, 
on golf courses, but this was the largest nursery in the South when he bought the property. So obviously there were going to be trees, but his philosophy was, let's cut down enough of them so that if, and I'm going to just pick a situation, so that if you're Phil Mickelson in 2010 and you're going to hit that shot from the pine straw in 13, that there's room to do it unless you can't make a swing and you got unlucky and your ball is too close to a tree. But generally, they're spaced far enough apart that you can advance the ball. Hence, Mickelson's what I think still is a totally ill-advised shot because all you had to do is pitch it to the bottom of the hill towards the left and he would have had a very easy pitch for his third shot and a short putt for birdie. And I think by hitting that six iron, he bought everything into play that was not good. He cleared the water by two feet. I don't people don't remember that that I talked to. And then he missed the four footer for Eagle. So, you know, you know, so it it worked out, but it was an insane decision. And I talked to Bones about it later and he said it's the first time that I ever begged Phil to lay up. He said, First I said, Let's lay up and Phil said no. And then he said, I beg you to lay up and Phil said definitely no and of course that was the end of it. But you know, the philosophy was that you should be able to advance your ball. And guys who have played there a lot really do for one of the really few courses where local knowledge actually exists. It's my feeling that if you play any golf course pretty much on tour, if these guys play it two times, they've got it. If they play it one time, they've generally got it. You know, it's not like they're going to be hitting it crooked and they're not going to hit it into the places that the 20 handicapper is going to hit it. So they don't need to practice the ridiculous shots. They just need to know where to put the ball off the tee and depending on where the pin is, how do you keep the ball underneath the hole? So hopefully the conditions will be such that Augusta National plays like it was intended, firm and fast with with fast greens that have gotten increasingly more fast over the years. And at some point, you know, there's going to be a tipping point that the speed of the greens will be too much for the slope of the greens. But I, I look for the contenders and no pretenders to to be the one from where the winner is chosen. And, of course, three guys that you basically never heard of, even though you've heard of everybody who's going to be in the field, but three guys that you don't expect will shoot the best 72 holes of their life, and sometimes it's good enough to win. Zach Johnson, Trevor Immelman, Mike Weir, just sometimes that happens where somebody you don't expect pops out of the mix. But generally, it's the great player who wins. Right. Why did you regret saying that to Tim Fincham, just going back to that for a minute? Because if, if that's the way you felt, why would you want that want to do over there? Well, because I ultimately changed my mind, one for one. and But more importantly, I kind of violated my own rule as the host, which was always to give the guest room to say whatever they wanted to, without fear of my offering another opinion, which happened to be my own opinion. And in golf, there's so few issues. I mean, it's Casey Martin. There was, you know, Arnold with uh, endorsing a golf club he shouldn't have endorsed, and I called him on it, but I went on too long about it during the show. And, you know, I did 1,300 shows, 1,298 I was thrilled with. I would get in the car and say, boy, really nailed that one. I never said, oh, I should have thought of this, I should have thought of that, because I always thought of everything. It was just the craziest set of circumstances where I perfectly fit the job and the job perfectly fit me, and it called on three or four things that I'm really, really good at and better than 
pretty much anybody who's ever done a, a golf television show, but it didn't call on any of the thousand things that I'm really terrible at. And my instincts were really, really good, except I should have just been more respectful to Tim and let him air his view and maybe presented a differing view, but without turning it into an argument or without trying to call him on his stance. I, I could have handled that better and I could have made a really good friend out of him. And with Arnold, he, 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 he unfortunately drank quite a bit before the show and we had had breakfast that day. That was uh, January of 2001 and he had just endorsed the club and Winnie, you know, hadn't been gone that long. And I, he was not getting good advice from the people who were supposed to be advising him. And I, and I realized all of this, and I had breakfast with him the morning of the show, and we agreed that I would say, okay, so you're not really saying people should use illegal equipment. What you're saying is, if there's a golf club that'll get you interested in the game and get you playing, then I'm all for it, but I'm not condoning cheating. And Arnold said, that's it, let's do that. And I said, okay, so I'll say that, and then you say yes, that's how I feel, and then that'll be the end of the discussion. I said, we'll just both get out of it, because I had taken a stance about it on TV, and he had been pretty stubborn about supporting what he later regretted in terms of the decision to go ahead and endorse that club. And I said to him last thing in the, at breakfast, please don't drink before the show. Now, we were really good friends. You know, I, I watched the OJ trial with him, and by the way, he said to me as we were watching the trial, he said, you know, we were up in Latrobe for, I was up there, I don't know if he had just invited me for a weekend or what was going on, but we're sitting there watching the, the, the trial, and he turned to me, he said, you know, he said, I did all those Hertz commercials with OJ, and he said, and he got so disproportionately angry at stuff that most people just wouldn't have had a fuss about. He said if there was a prop in the wrong place or he didn't like his makeup, he said it was his reaction, he said, was just so over the top. And he said, I believe he, he said, I believe then if I had been asked and I totally believe now that he killed these two people. I mean, so we, we had a really good relationship. We played a lot of golf together. I would get called whenever he was filming a commercial to help him get through it because he used to read his name off the prompter like it was a foreign word he'd never heard before. <laughs> and I knew how to get him past all of that stuff. And so for me to say to Arnold, don't drink tonight, was totally consistent with the nature of our relationship at that time. And he said, okay. If he had one drink, he was fine. If he had two drinks, he was fine. If he had more, then he wasn't fine. And so when I looked at him as I sat in my chair in the dark waiting for him to be walked over towards the end of our new show, Golf Central, he was weaving. And I thought, man, he's had five drinks. And so I knew when he sat down that I needed to be careful. And I just made the terrible mistake of when I said to him what I just told you about, you know, just trying to get people involved in the game, instead of him saying yes, he looked at me and he said, you know, I've gotten so many letters and phone calls from my friends who called me a cheater. And if you call me a cheater now, I'll punch you in the nose right now. And instead of letting that work and then dismissing the whole thing in some elegant kind of way, I continued to try to give him an out and it didn't work. And I, and I regretted it always. And I didn't like the way I handled it. But again, it was two times out of 1,300 shows, but I would have rather had it happen with a couple of people that you didn't really hear so much about or 
know so much about or wouldn't have had such an, a lasting impact, but it was Tim Fincham and Arnold Palmer, and those are two guys that you don't want to get upset, and I think that I did a pretty good job of getting them upset. Yeah, one thing if you piss off, you know, Mark Brooks or something, but there's not, you know, there's not as much blowback as if you, you know, cross yeah. Arnold Palmer. Yeah, did that, t- t- times a zillion. Yeah, did that, I imagine that put a strain on your relationship with Arnold. Well, it, it actually didn't. It was, I mean, it certainly put pressure on it because we were such good friends that I think he was surprised that I continued to pursue the subject but I wasn't trying to attack him. I was trying to give him a way out, and I kept searching for different ways, and none of them worked. And and then Arnold and I, right after, well, then he, I didn't get fired until the end of that calendar year, and they kind of told me that that was what was going to happen. I, they told me at, pretty much after the Palmer show, this is, your, you know, at the end of the year, we're going to let you go, so it doesn't look like it had anything to do with Arnold. Do and you think that, so, did that direction come from Palmer or the executives? I don't think, no. I really don't. I, I I never blamed Arnold. I never thought it was him. And and after I was fired in the beginning of '02, I went up to New York to host what's the most important you know golf writer dinner, um, distinct from the one they have at, at at the Masters every year. But it's the Met Golf Writers Dinner, and they went honor they Arnold they honored Arnold, Jack, and Gary that year. And so. There's like 30 people on the dais and a thousand people in the audience in black tie. And I was now gone from the golf channel and I hadn't seen Arnold in a couple of months and saw him in the private room. And I ended up sitting next to him on the dais. And I said, you know, I said, was this because of the show we did? And he said, I had nothing to do with your being let go from the channel. He said, I did everything I could to try to help you there. He said, I felt like you did your job. He said, I, he said, I stuck to my guns. He said, I know now that I did the wrong thing, and I'm sorry that it ended up hurting you. And uh, so, you know, he acknowledged that, and he knew he had made a mistake, and he understood the influences and the pressures and the absence of Winnie and all of the circumstances that would have let him make a decision that he wouldn't have made, certainly, had she been alive. She would not have allowed him to do anything to break the rules of golf and tradition and integrity and history. And uh, so we remained friends after that for a few years. And then we kind of drifted apart because, well, I don't know about the because part, but we did drift apart after a while. And when we did see each other, it was like we were sneaking on a date. You know, he didn't want people at the Golf Channel who ran the Golf Channel to know that. We were still friendly because they really, the guy who ran the Golf Channel was very jealous of my relationship with Arnold, which was very much father-son. I mean, we played golf dozens and dozens of times, and I spent so much time with him up in Latrobe and had so many meals with him and went to so many different golf courses with him here, actually in the Orlando area, where he would be playing a match against a couple of guys, and I would be his partner, but I wouldn't be in on the money. And uh, we almost always won, and I was a good six at that time. And somehow I always played good golf with him after the first round where I played horrible golf and hit a ball through the windshield of his cart on the first day that we met. Um, But (laughs) eventually we kind of drifted apart, but I did see him, you know, uh, from time to time. And I saw him at Latrobe, at uh, Bay Hill every year. I would seek him out. We would sit and talk. And two years before he passed, I was at Bay Hill. And I lived about 30 minutes from there, and I caught up with him. He was just hanging around, and 
we sat and talked for 30 or 40 minutes and I could see that he wasn't doing well and I could tell that things were hurting him and he wasn't as with the program and he was starting to look old for the first time ever and so I knew the time was running out and um, and so we never really had to make peace because I never really blamed him and he never suggested that he did anything other than try to help me, but he said I'd lost my power and the company had already been acquired by Comcast and I didn't have the role that I had before. And and he said, and I just wasn't able to help you. And I, I was sorry about that. And I was sorry for you because you were great at what you did. And I, and it was a big loss for the Golf Channel. So wasn't Arnold. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'd heard you mention those instances in some other interviews that you've done. So I was, I was kind of curious to follow up on that and um, get your kind of maybe some closure on that. I, I appreciate your asking. I, I'm, I never mind talking about it. And, it, you know, it's, you know, certainly a bittersweet situation because that was clearly the best gig that I ever had. It was the one I was most suited for. And again, the one that called on the things that I do well. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so, you know, I consider that really my life's work, even though I did do 10 years on radio and I did do some of the best print interviews that were ever done, including Phil Mickelson and oh. We did it in 03, and it came out before the Masters in 04 that he won when he said that Tiger was stuck with inferior equipment and then Nike called me. Yeah, so that that was a big interview. And it was funny, too, because that was actually the first one I did for Golf Magazine. And I had never done a print interview before, and I didn't know that if you were doing a print interview that you didn't send it to the interviewee for his approval. But... I finished, you know, editing it, and I sent it to him, and I sent it to his manager, and I said, you know, if you're uncomfortable with anything, they, they let love me know. It. They love it when you do that, by the way, Peter. <laughs> usually, they, usually they ask you to do that, and you tell them no. <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody ever said anything to me one way or the other, and I just thought as a courtesy, you know, Phil and I were definitely friends, and so I sent it to him, and he wrote back and thought it was great, and his manager thought it was great, and his PR guy thought it was great. And none of us realized what the impact of the inferior equipment line. And he didn't necessarily 100% mean Nike equipment. He sort of meant, as far as I was concerned at the time, that that golf clubs in general didn't allow Tiger's genius to be fully appreciated, that equipment was not easy at, at, in terms of just being able to hit great golf shots. But he also meant Nike a little bit, too. And so um, that's the way everybody took it. And the great thing about Phil was they, my recorder was not on when we had that conversation. We were eating lunch, and I wrote, wrote it down, that what he said about Tiger's equipment. And they said to him, is that what you said? And he said, yep, that's exactly what I said. So... You know, he could have said, well, not exactly. He could have done a lot of things, but he just told the truth, and I always appreciated that. That's the beauty of Phil. He's probably not going not gonna to walk anything back once, he, once it's out there. Speaking of equipment, have you, have you watched YouTube release, like the last, or the Masters released via YouTube, the last 50 years of the final rounds? You can watch them on YouTube, you know, uninterrupted. They cut out the commercials, and so you can go back and watch the 78 Masters if you forgot about that. And I went back and watched a few of them, including the obviously the '96 Masters to relive that. That was special, and even the '99 Masters just with Olathebel. And I'm watching Olathebel in on the 15th hole on Sunday, and he's got 
you know, 230 yards into that green from the top of the hill. And he's de- debating whether to, to go for the green or to, or to lay up. Almost anybody would go for the green from, you know, that doesn't seem that far now. But he laid up, and Ken Venturi speculates he laid up because he didn't have a two iron. He only, he didn't, you know, it was between a one iron and a two iron, and he didn't have the right club. But he's basically, he's deliberating between a one iron or a two iron. And it's just amazing to, to think that wasn't that long ago where those shots would require that kind of a club. Sergio last year hits eight iron into 15, and we've seen players hit eight and nine irons, maybe even less into 13. Do you, do you enjoy watching the pros hit short irons into par fives? Where do you, what is that? How does that make you feel? It's very upsetting to me. You know, there's 14 clubs in the bag. I'd like to see them used. Where we are today is the players are using five or six clubs. It just doesn't make any sense to me at all. Let me give you a statistical example. Last year, Dustin Johnson played X number of events around the world. He never hit, except on one occasion, a shot longer to a par four than a seven iron. And the one time he hit more than seven iron, he hit once a six iron. He averaged gap wedge for the year. Earlier this year in Hawaii, his second shot average leave on for the four days was 84 yards. So that's lob wedge, you know, or sand wedge, depending on the shot he's trying to hit. And the field average to the par fours for the whole week was 114 yards. So gap wedge for the field as the average club that they're hitting into um, a par four. You look at Palmer, uh, say, in 1960 at the U.S. Open, and he averaged in the final round, a four iron. He averaged a four iron and only hit one wedge and one seven iron, and everything else was two iron and five iron and four iron and three iron. So, you know, the game has changed completely. I mean, you know, you've you've obviously now watched a number of those Masters final rounds, and, you know, you go ahead and you watch 1986 to just pick an example, and, you know, there's Jack hitting four iron in the 15 when he was still a relatively long player, even though he was 46 years old. And he's hitting five iron to 16. You don't see the guys doing that now. And uh, and I miss that. You know, I remember Jack getting it up and down with a one iron in 1967 at Baltusrol on the final hole, playing with Arnold when he shot 69, 65, and Arnold shot 69 to lose to Jack again in one of the very few head-to-head matchups that they ever had. They only had three or four head-to-heads. It just doesn't happen in golf. You you like it to happen, but it doesn't happen. And, um, you know, and he hit a one-iron from 218 and made the 20-footer. And, of course, there was the great one-iron he hit at Pebble Beach in 72 at the U.S. Open that hit the flag and stopped four inches away. So I miss seeing the one-irons, and I miss seeing the long-irons. And, you know, there's 14 clubs. I would just like to see the guys have to use them. You know, and Augusta National is one of the few places where they can adjust the golf course by buying streets. And they just, they're buying the ninth hole at Augusta Country Club, which adjoins the 13th hole at Augusta National, so that they can move that tee back another 25 yards. 
in an effort to get the guys to hit clubs into those greens now that they hit well in 1986 when Jack was hitting shots into those greens. I mean, the ninth hole at Augusta National was intended to be a four or five iron shot where you couldn't get down to the bottom of the hill, so you had a downhill eye to an uphill green. It was a really hard shot. You know, then over time, it got to the point where guys were hitting it to the bottom of the hill. And as an example, you mentioned 96 Masters. Greg Norman had 103 yards, 106 yards to the pin on number nine in 86 in his final round against Nick. And he hit sand wedge, and it wasn't enough club, and it came back all the way back down the hill, and he made another five to be the middle of a whole string of fives uh, uh, in, in, uh, in during that final round that cost him the lead and cost him the championship. But he was hitting sand wedge, and I said to him later, you know, why did you hit sand wedge? And he said, well, you know, I didn't want to be past the pin. He said, but he said, I tried to hit it a little harder because my my at my longest I can hit the sandwich is 103 and the shot was 106 and I said I can't believe that you couldn't have forced the club to hit, go nine more feet or that you couldn't have then taken your pitching wedge and just and just hit a knockdown shot something a little bit lower without a lot of spin and he acknowledged that he wasn't thinking as clearest at that point and that he was in intellectual and physical trouble and then he kept moving his adjusting his setup and aiming more and more to the right over every single tee ball it was just hard to watch and hard to talk about afterwards and um so yes i i'm very much in the camp of i believe that the ball should max out at some number of carry at around 300 yards under normal conditions and i know they can make that ball without spending any more money they they have molds from every year since they began making golf balls at every manufacturer and there's already a mold from several years ago where the ball goes a little shorter than it does now so i'm in favor of it being just the ball I don't want to stifle the golf club innovation that manufacturers can still play with. I don't want anything to change for the recreational golfer. I would just like to see a slightly rolled back ball for professional tournaments and majors, but just the tour and just majors, not the U.S. amateur, not an event that would get you to play in a tour event, not to complicate it at all, just the PGA Tour and for major championships. And in that case, you know, we'll knock off about 25 yards that we've picked up since, oh, well, really it started in 2000 where we've picked up really 30 yards since then. But if we could get back 20 of those yards, I think it would make a big difference because all of a sudden you'd see guys hitting a lot more five and six irons than eight, nine irons. And I would like to see that again. So I'm in favor of that rollback. I don't believe there's a big R&D course cost. I do believe the molds exist, and there's going to be a certain number of recreational players who are going to want to play what the pros play. Not me. I could care less. I don't know anybody who will buy a ball that plays recreational golf that will go shorter than the ones that they have now, and I don't think anybody cares about not playing the exact equipment that Dustin Johnson is playing, because he's not even playing the same game. There's no relationship between the game of the fellows that I play with who shoot 85 to Dustin Johnson. They don't hit it as far. They don't hit it as straight. They can't spin it. So 
and you know they can't play recreational players couldn't play with his set of clubs they would be too heavy and they would be too stiff and you would lose the ball to the right and so even now there's and I hate the word bifurcation but there really are two different games that recreational players and professional players play and even with this rule change of uh, next year if you're playing a friendly game and you hit it into the trash that you drop one and add two. Well, everybody does that now except only add one. I mean, I don't know anybody who plays golf that if we don't go look for the ball for more than 30 seconds in the woods and you just drop one and you play it as a lateral and you just keep playing. I mean, guys have been doing that for years and years and years. The USGA say, no, you've got to take two shots. Nobody's going to take two. It's not going to happen. People are just going to play it as a lateral. So even there, they're not going to be doing that on tour. That's just for recreational golf. So already in the new rules, there's a different set of criteria for recreational players versus the pros. So there wouldn't be a precedent in having a slightly rolled back ball, which I'm in favor of. The biggest argument against bifurcation is that one of the charms of golfs is that you do play the exact same equipment. You can play the same course. You can play the same tees. There's no almost no barrier between the highest level of the game and the beginner, uh, and that's an attraction for some. I never thought of it that way. It would, it, that never. That's not why I play golf. It, that doesn't mean anything for for me personally. Uh, but that's the argument that I've I've heard is is that everybody wants to play be able to play the same equipment, the same clubs, the same ball as the guys on TV. But I mean, is is that a valid argument? You kind of explained why it's not. It's really not the case. But how much validity should we put in that? Because there seems to be a lot of opposition to bifurcation. I don't get it. I, it, I don't know one person who plays golf and I know a lot of people who play golf I don't know one person who plays golf who's ever bought equipment because so and so played it I don't know anybody who's ever played golf who insists on playing especially now maybe years ago this might be more true but I don't know anybody who plays the wrong tees I I like just literally don't know anybody who plays the wrong tees I I think the number of people who insist on playing what the pros play is is less than one half of one percent of all recreational golfers there's 70 million people who play around the world i'll bet there's not a hundred thousand of them that care about playing exactly what the pros play under the exact same circumstances and if they do they're just kidding themselves because they can't hit it as far so why would you want to play the back tees you know if you play the back tees and you hit one offline you're just trying to get back and play then you're not going to hit the green with your third shot on a par four and you're going to have some shot of 100 yards or less and then you're going to miss the green i mean it's just a recipe for sixes and sevens and i don't understand that way of thinking at all and i literally don't know of anybody that thinks that way at all i mean everybody that i play with has moved up a set of tees in the last few years including myself i'm now playing 6200 6300 instead of 65 and 6550 you know just a couple hundred yards makes a big difference and it's funny too because when i i love to play golf by myself 
at the end of a day, which is how I learned to play golf by myself at the end of a day. And, and I love to go out at the end of the day and I still play with what's the best spot on the teeing ground for me to hit off from. And, and right now I'm comfortable going somewhere between the regular member tees and the senior tees. The senior tees are a little too close. They're maybe a few too many wedges and it brings trouble into play that isn't in play if you move back 10 or 15 yards so i'm trying to develop a mix of shots into the greens where you know i don't have 12 hybrids maybe six hybrids and 12 irons is is an okay mix and and that mix would be consistent of what we used to see the pros do where they would have a mix of longer shots and shorter shots and as we talked about earlier the pros aren't hitting those longer shots you rarely see them hit a hybrid and when you do it's to a par five that's uphill or into the wind and you know it's always a circumstance as opposed to a a, a, a normal shot so i just don't i don't know who these people are i don't know why they're resisting and the one thing that's really upsetting to me right now is, you know, I see so many guys who have a platform on TV or in golf uh, magazines that are published either online or in print who have a sort of sense that if they don't r rally against bifurcation, the Titleist won't continue to advertise in their magazines or on their website or on their television show. And, and I've gotten into a number of Twitter wars, and I tried to create this, this character on Twitter, and it's just not working out. Everybody else just says, oh, you know, Shan Shan Fang just birdied six, seven, and eight. And I'm trying to do something more interesting and to be provocative, but I'm getting so many bad reactions, and I've got so many friends telling me to knock it off, and that it's not really me, and why would I get into fights with peers in my own industry? But, you know, I've kind of taken on everybody um, who, who takes the position that, you know, it's that the athlete is now what's causing the ball to go farther. Or even like Mike Johnson, who I've known for a long time at Golf Digest, he's been the equipment guy for 25 years, and we got into a dust-up online, and he's saying that the reason that there shouldn't be any changes is because he always likes sports where physical superiority rules. And I wrote back and said, you mean like Kira Dash and Brian Harmon and Justin Thomas, who's 5'10"? I said, that, you know, what, do you, what are you talking about? And he said, well, um, you know, if you look at the guys in 1980, they don't compare to the guys today. And I said, okay, let's look at 1980. The majors were won by Seve, Jack, Tom, and Jack. And I said, you can't do any better than that. And he said, yeah, but Dustin and Johnson and Brooks Kepka could wrestle all of those guys down to the ground in a minute. And I said, well, maybe that's how we do playoffs from now on. If you tie, you have a fist fight or you wrestle. And eventually, we en I ended up blocking him because he produced some article that mentioned that I had a contract in 1999 and 2000 with Spalding to do voiceovers for their equipment while I was at the Golf Channel. But my Golf Channel contract gave me permission to have the Spalding contract or else I wouldn't have done it. And there was no distance debate going on. And then Matt Rudy of Golf Digest writes that I'm a cheater because I took money from the Perfect Club company. That was my own company. I started it in 2002. I had no conflict with anybody. It was, it was my business. I was the president of the company. I developed the club. I started the first company that marketed hybrids, literally, even though 
I still believe there were a couple of clubs before mine that were hybrids. They just weren't being called that. They might be called an Ironwood or a rescue club, but it was coming. And I was the first one to actually say it's a replacement club for your long irons. And so it was a business that I started, and there was no reason for me to not get paid. And yet they were just taking these curious, curious shots in defense of their position that there shouldn't be any changes to the equipment because it's all based on the athlete. I mean, Randall Chambly, who knows better, <laughs> wrote, you know, in a month or so ago, he said, you know, he said, physics has hit the wall in equipment. How does he know that? And 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 it hasn't hit the wall because the clubs and the ball keep improving and he's saying so it's really just the athlete and that's what Mike Johnson was saying and Steve Eubank said that I know that they know better than that they all know that the ball has gone tremendously longer since 2000 when Tiger first played the first real hard ball in, in, in late that year and so I just don't understand I guess I do understand they're kind of protecting their franchises and their income from Titleist which these shows, but my view is the Titleist doesn't lose any money if there's a rolled back ball. They still give them to the pros for free, so there was never any money to be made there, and there's one more ball that the guys that you reference that I don't personally ever meet who insist on playing with the pros play, so guys will still buy exactly, you know, the, the, the pro, the tour ball, if such a thing should come to pass, so I don't get this digging in and it really upsets me when guys that I really really respect I know are seeing things that they absolutely 100% know aren't true and that's got me really upset lately and I'm kind of deliberately staying off that argument on Twitter because I get worked up over it more because my peers are taking positions that I know are untenable and it's upsetting to me as a purist. I mean, the only thing that will ever affect Titleist's bottom line or, you know, anybody who produces a golf ball is if golf instructors actually do what, you know, what their job is and perfect everybody's swing so nobody loses a golf ball or hits it in the lake anymore. Golf balls are the most needed item uh, no in the entire industry. There's, you know, there's, that's the best business to be in is to produce golf balls. They're always going to be needed. So, I, I you know, the, it doesn't, I, I agree with you. There's... That worrying about Titleist and Titleist, uh, you know, objecting to any kind of ball control, uh, that that argument doesn't fly with me. They're going to sell golf balls no matter what they are. And then there's the other part of the argument, which is that the fans dig the long ball, chicks dig the long ball. Except the real truth of that is, if you watch on TV. You don't have any idea how far they're hitting it unless they tell you how far they're hitting it. I don't know any, I can't tell any difference between Jack Nicholas hitting a drive in 86 and Dustin Johnson hitting a drive that goes, you know, 50 yards or whatever farther. You can't tell that on TV. You can't tell that from the swing because there's still TV is way behind and giving you the fly to the golf ball. You know, they're using this pro tracer, which are colored lines, which, you know, colored, I mean, I, I get it, but I don't like it so much because I I, I, I want to see the golf ball. And the blimp doesn't work. I never understand the blimp. The blimp never gives you an accurate sense of perspective. You, you don't know where the ball is relative to the ground. You don't know where the ball is relative to the trees. And then when the ball finally comes down, they back up 
the camera on the blimp to show where it actually came down because the camera always goes too far forward. So I never understand the blimp because I've never seen a blimp shot that impressed me in any way whatsoever. And they're noisy. And so, you know, you can't tell how far it goes. And so if you can't tell and everybody's watching on television, then what difference does it make? You know, there there is no long ball. There is whatever the ball is, is whatever the ball is. And whatever the second shot is, is whatever it is. But this dig the long ball so guys can hit a lob wedge from 50 yards in the rough just doesn't make any sense to me at all. No, it's all about selling equipment. We, know, we, we, we definitely know that. You know, the other side of the argument is, at least for me, it may not be for, for you, but I'll ask you about it anyway, is the, the effect that increased technology has is on, on golf courses and architecture. You know, part of, the, part of what really gets people motivated about this is the fact that the PGA Tour does go to some historic golf courses that can be rendered obsolete by the driver and the golf ball. I'd, in speaking to architects, I'm not sure how much of an effect it has on their actual day-to-day business when they're designing or remodeling a club or designing a, a new course somewhere. How much more extra land do they really need? I think that's a that's an unsettled de- debate, and you'll get vi- different opinions. But when it comes to the tour and going to old courses, should we really care? I mean, should we should that be something that that motivates us to want to roll back the ball because uh, the tour may stop at Interlochen or Oak Hill once every few years? Well, I mean, the, the, the last few of your words, you know, really, really hits it, which is, you know, if you if you have a golf course that you've now manipulated to be able to uh, handle the play of the best players in the world, you're talking about them coming for one week every 10 years, literally. I mean, you know, if you look at the U.S. Open rotation, you every 10 years, you know, you might get best case. It might come to your golf course again. So does it really make sense to go in and make all kinds of changes other than just adding another tee to accommodate today's equipment, um, which hits the ball farther and hits the ball straighter? I mean, there's just no question about it. So I don't like that they have to manipulate these courses. I mean, I I went to Marion when Justin Rose went a few years ago, and I've played Marion a number of times, and I just found it really hard, and the greens are so small and so difficult, and even the par threes, they're just really murder. And But they had to do so much to manipulate that golf course with the rough and the firmness of the greens and the speed of the greens and you know they stretched the holes out you know 18 was playing 60 yards longer than the last time that they had played Mary and I mean it was just it was it just didn't make any sense whatsoever even though the guys did have to hit long irons in 18 which I liked but even then it was so manipulated I remember when when Justin Rose hit his last full shot into the 72nd hole at at Marion that the pin was at the back of the green on the last slope that would carry a ball over the green if you had too much speed when it got to that slope. And Justin Rose hit an absolutely perfect golf shot. It hit the right section of the green, and when it got to that last slope, it was barely moving when it came over the top. But because the pin was on a steep hill that would feed the ball off of the green, he ended up lifting off of the green now he could have chipped or putted and and, 
um, and, and he did have that option, but he shouldn't have had he shouldn't have had anything left. I mean, the ball was not moving when it got to the hole, and this was a three iron. So even the pin was so manipulated on the final hole, knowing that the organizers knowing that long irons were going to be hit into there, where you make an accessible pin, you don't have to try to manipulate the score and while the USGA says we don't manipulate try to manipulate the scores they of course try to manipulate the scores I mean that's that's definitely what they do and Mike Davis is you know really terrific at that and he's done a much better job than his predecessor in setting up these golf courses especially since the Shinnecock disaster you know 15 years ago and um and so they're doing a better job, but you know what they have. Augusta National is one of the very few places in the world that can afford to do what they do by streets and by homes and by golf courses and all sorts of stuff to restore the length. Um, so no, and I, I, you know, and winged foot they've you know made much longer for the U.S. Open that's coming. I told you I had played there and that they had changed the greens in a fairly significant way. I thought and made them kind of less interesting. And uh, it's funny too because I was friendly with a guy who works. For Gil Hunts, and uh, I had written a note saying that they had flattened the greens and that I didn't think the pros were afraid of speed. I thought they were afraid of speed with undulation. And he literally broke off our friendship because I suggested that they weren't as attractive as the Tillinghast greens. And that was upsetting to me because it was a really nice guy and we were establishing a nice sort of relationship online. And so people are very sensitive about all this stuff. But I, if you have to stretch it a little bit, that's fine. If you're not, because the recreational player can still play the same golf course. But when you do everything to make it tougher, I think that that's change, having to change the field of play. I mean, you know, the baseball parks haven't changed since Babe Ruth was in his prime. I mean, the ball still goes pretty much the same distance. And, you know, even though the wood bats... You know, they, you know, you can only use wood bats in the major leagues, but you can use aluminum bats, you know, in in and uh, uh, in, in, in inferior organizations or, you know, in college. But those metal bats actually are made in such a way that the ball doesn't really go farther than a wood bat. But that's another discussion. But I, you know, the field of play should be the ball should the equipment should fit the field of play. And now we have a situation where it doesn't fit the field of play. And I think you do what tennis does. I mean, in, you know, in tennis, what happened was the ball was moving so quickly on the serve that no points were being played. It was just every, it was just, it was serving out, serving out. And they slowed down the tennis ball. They didn't change the size of the field of play. They just made sure that the equipment fit the field of play. And nobody ever even talks about that or mentions that or anything. It was just not a big deal. It was just a little tweak and it made the game enjoyable again so that you could watch Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal hit those crazy angled shots which years before you wouldn't have been able to hit because the ball went so quickly on the serve that you couldn't get it back into play with an offensive move. It was always a just get it back into play and it was a defensive move. So I just think it's such an easy thing to do and something that people wouldn't even make a fuss about after it happened like tennis and like wooden bats for baseball and not changing the size of the ballparks. Stay tuned for part two of my talk with Peter Kessler.